restaurants is a really big market. And it was a market that nobody ever thought to build anything. And at the time, this was like 2011. Nobody was thought it was a good idea. We talked to VCs about whether or not we we, we said we're going to build a restaurant business. You know, we don't invest in restaurant tech. Are you kidding? That's crazy. It's dead. It's nothing there, right? But it was just early days. I think we were not on trend. You know, a lot of a lot of times it's easier to raise money if you're on some hot tech trend, which we were definitely not. We were ahead of the trend. But I think in hindsight that that may be a better position to be in. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Steve Ferdet is president and co-founder of Toast Inc., where he spearheads the company's product and innovation initiatives. Toast is a cloud-based restaurant software company based in Boston, Massachusetts. The company provides a restaurant management and point-of-sale system built on the Android operating system. A seasoned leader in the technology space, Stephen has helped create and develop a number of key innovations that have shaped the evolving restaurant industry, including ToastGo and Toast Order and pay. Prior to founding Toast, Steve started and co-led the mobile commerce business at Endeka, now part of Oracle, where he built out the product team and drove sales to over $10 million in two years. Drawing on his extensive background in technology, Steve is deeply passionate about innovation, entrepreneurship, and building a high-performance team. I started out by asking, as I often do, did he always know he wanted to be an entrepreneur? I had an uncle, two uncles, in fact, that were entrepreneurs. And one of my first jobs was working for my uncle at Sterling Academy of Gymnastics. And um, it was a small business. And in fact, one of the inspirations for Toast was building something for small businesses, and in our case, restaurants. But my first experience with that was working for him. So it's a family business. He worked there. His wife worked there. They were uh, the owners. His his kids worked there. And he was an innovator. He built his own planes when he was in, a kid. He built his own helicopters, model helicopters. He learned, got his own pilot's license, never went um, to college, but it didn't stop him from just learning all sorts of things and and figuring figuring out what he needed to figure out to, uh, to get things done. So that was always an inspiration for me. And um, another uncle who had started his own chemical business, uh, he was a chemical engineer and he, and he built a plant out in uh, Orange Mass. Also, he was always had crazy ideas and he always had some new business idea. And, and then he made a bunch of them happen and he had started a couple of different businesses. So I, that was definitely inspired by, by both of them uh, for sure. Yeah. And what about your parents? Were, were they entrepreneurs? No, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a, um, had a PhD in marine biology. He worked for the Army Corps of Engineers for a long career. And so very different backgrounds. I would say it was more seeing some of the family members around them. And then I remember, you know, my uncle's oldest son and my cousin was fascinated with tech and on and innovation as well too. And so we used to talk about Dean Kamen and stuff that was going on with him and, and his innovations and what was going on there. So that was sort of another innovator that I grew up kind of being aware of. Was that the time when you thought to yourself or knew, you know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur? No, at the time, no, I would say I, I kind of got the entrepreneurial bug in college. So while I had those influences 
in high school, I think my main motivation in high school at the time was I want to go to MIT. I think I remember asking my dad, like, how do I get to MIT? And, or how do I get a full scholarship to MIT? I think is what I asked him. He's like, oh, turns out they don't really give full scholarships, I don't think, but it's all need-based and not merit-based. But he said, well, you know, you probably should work really hard. Maybe you got to go get a job in a tech company. So I said, okay, well, fine. And I went and talked to the local chamber of commerce and worked my way into a, a tech company that was a local tech company in, in Gardner, Massachusetts, Precision Optics Corporation. And they made endoscopes and they were making fiber optics stuff. And I was just really fascinated by all this tech. And I learned to teach myself how to program microcontrollers. And I learned C++ and programming so I could build a test system to so you could line up the two cameras and they would point at the same target because, you know, you've got to get stereo cameras in this stereo endoscope. It was like a 3D endoscope system for in minimally invasive surgery. So I was in this whole world of tech that I just kind of got myself into. And I would say, now you look back on that, that was a very self-starter entrepreneurial thing to do, self-taught, self-motivated. But I didn't think about that as wanting to be an entrepreneur at the time. I thought more about wanting to just, I enjoyed the tech. I enjoyed being an entrepreneur. I enjoyed learning and figuring things out and trying to make it work. And actually, my grandfather was a chemistry teacher. I already mentioned my dad was a PhD in marine biology. And, uh, and then my uncle was a chemical engineer, as I mentioned that too. So I actually had, I had a passion for sort of math and science. And then I, I uh, in high school, I was going to take an internship Again, through the Chamber of Commerce, this woman had set me up with this other company and they wanted me to do a bunch of Java programming. So I was going to read this whole book on Java and do this internship. But the high school principal didn't think that was a very good idea because he felt that internships were for were basically just for slacking off <laughs> and uh, not for serious study or, or work. And so I still remember that now. But, but instead, I took organic chemistry and my organic chemistry teacher in high school uh, gave me her organic chemistry college textbook. And I just read the thing like cover to cover. And I found it so fascinating. And I just really fell in love with some of these concepts of, of chemistry. And so then I went, became a chemistry major. And, but then I worked in this lab in college, I actually worked at the Robert Langer lab. Of course, I think he was one of the founders of Moderna. So there was some entrepreneurial DNA that he had too. And he was very involved with, I don't know, all sorts of gene sequencing also. So I'm talking about all of that early stuff. I think, or something along those lines, and didn't really like the pace of lab work. It was compared that to programming. I had programmed in college and I in programmed in high school. You know, you write a line of code and then you refresh your browser and you see it immediately working. It's instantaneous feedback. And with a lab, it was you do something for 60 hours in a week and your experiment would fail. You have to run it all over the next week. It was the most frustrating thing ever. And then I looked at, well, maybe as I started thinking about wanting to build companies. And I said, well, if I want to do a company in biotech, I've got to go get a PhD and then I've got to go build a company and then I've got to go get clinical trials for 10 years. By the time I have anything else out in the market, it's going to be half my life. I fell in love with tech because then I actually ended up building a software company that competed with Facebook when they were at five schools plus MIT. They were at Ivy League schools and then MIT. And we had already had a website called uh, wickedparty.com, which was a horrible name, by the way. And so Good it was a branding that I've learned from that. Yeah. But it was a Boston reference. We thought, well, wicked is this Boston term. And we had this motivation. Maybe you go to MIT and, and you're motivated. Did you say you went to BU? You had motivation yeah. to- Boston uh, University. Was that, so, yeah. No, so we had this motivation to hang out with kids from across the city and not just kids from MIT. We wanted to party with kids from BU or kids from Northeastern or kids from Tufts or Simmons or Suffolk or- Emmanuel, all the other these uh, all these other Boston colleges in the area. So we created this website. We had at the time we were kind of copying features from 
from Friendster or MySpace, you could connect to, I could see my connection to you and your connection is to other people. And then a you know, fourth degree connection from there, I could see my social graph. I could upload photos. I had a profile and we had you know, probably had 20 or 30,000 users on this website at the time. But when Facebook came out, they just grew at MIT way faster than Wicked Party had. And it, it made a lot of sense to me. The brilliant piece of it was everybody's got a high school and pretty much everyone in high school joins the yearbook. For whatever reason, we have this weird psychology where we think we need to have our photos in the yearbook and then we never look at them again. Maybe we look at them like 30 years later. I don't know. But you have to be in it. And so all of a sudden now you're in college and you have to put your profile in this thing called the Facebook. It just we naturally said we can't not be listed. Right. And that whereas that wasn't the case with a website called wickedparty.com. It was a much narrow niche of people who would associate with that name. And Facebook was very general and broad and appealed to everybody and anybody. It wasn't exclusionary in purely in its name, but otherwise the functionality was more or less the same. And so within two weeks, we had built an exact clone of Facebook banner image and logo and everything exactly the same, which obviously was probably copyright infringement. But we get an instant message on AIM from Mark Zuckerberg, shut it down. You guys copied our website. What the hell? Like, you know, we're going to cease and desist kind of thing. We'll see you. We're like, ah, screw you. We're going to compete with you. And so we launched ours all called collegefaces.com, which was not that much better a name, but it still wasn't much, still was not the Facebook, but forced Facebook to launch it 15 other schools in the Boston area instead of just going Ivy League to Ivy League school. But at the, then when they did launch that, their network was more powerful. I, it overtook ours. And I think also they just took it more seriously. They had a lot of smart and intelligent you know, features in the way they named the website itself, but also the poke was pretty brilliant. The wall was brilliant. The news feed was brilliant. They really just knew how to capture human social interaction digitally in a way that I don't think we we were nowhere nowhere near as advanced as in terms of our thinking as Zuckerberg was. And then he quit college and went full time and moved to the West Coast. And, you know, we had a final the next week or something, you know, so it just didn't take it seriously. We just thought it was a stupid college website. It's really incredible. I've never heard that story. And thinking about it and thinking back, you're kind of nonchalant about obviously what, what Facebook's become, what, I mean, you've, You've done, you've been extremely successful yourself, but was there ever any time or have you thought about it over the years? Like, wow, I should have taken it a little more serious or we could have done X, Y, and Z. Does, is that with you often? Yeah. And during the whole AIM message with, with Mark, he was like, well, why don't you join us? And I guess he had some ideas of different color websites. I'm not really sure why he's like, so we were working on the blue site and the green site, you guys could be the orange site or whatever it was, I think. And we probably would have been employee five or six or something like that. The first, for certainly the first 10. And we said, ah, no, it's for you. And there was three of us, but it would have been a good move for us, I, I think, financially. But I don't know if we would have enjoyed that. And then who knows what would happen? You know, you can't, I don't think you can look back at these things and, and regret it. It was just a chapter of our life and we learned something. And it gave us the entrepreneurial bug for sure. Because after that, and you did see that, that Facebook became a, a real company after that and was growing quickly and rapidly. And you're like, wow, I was, that could have been me. I want to do this again. So it really kind of gave you the motivation to go and just become an entrepreneur. But then we said, well, we don't know how to, how do we do that? How do we become an entrepreneur? I don't know. And so we had um, the CEO of Indeca, the founder of Indeca, which was a local Boston company that had been started out of a Harvard business school dorm room by Steve Papa. It was probably four or five years in the making. It was growing hundred percent a year at the time. And and Steve reached out to an HBS, Harvard Business School alumni, uh, 
or email list. And somehow my roommate was on it, even though we were at MIT, but he also wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so he just managed to get on this list. And he responded and said, I'll, I want to work here for the summer. And he impressed Steve and Steve hired him. And then he came back after that summer, my senior year and said, you got to work at this company. This company is amazing. We're it's growing super fast. Steve Papa is amazing. He's an awesome entrepreneur. I'm learning so much from him. And there's also really good people here. It's, it's not just Steve. It's the whole company is just full of really talented people, which is very true. And DECA had a, an incredible group of people, many of whom went on to become entrepreneurs at many, many other companies after that. So I said, okay. And so my, my senior year, I started working there 25 hours a week, first semester. And, and, and then second semester, I just stopped taking classes because I had enough credits. And then I worked there for pretty much full time, except I had to go back to gym class to finish my, uh, my gym requirement so I could graduate. But two hours a, a week, I would have to leave at like 11 a.m. And my teammates would be, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to gym class. But I was working full time and I felt like I was learning more. And I think there's a theme here because I always, actually in my own yearbook, my quote in my own yearbook was a Mark Twain quote, never let formal education get in the way of your learning. And so here I was felt like I, I had MIT as formal education, but I was learning more working 25 hours a week at Indeca, then I, I felt like I was learning from any of my MIT classes. Yeah. Or at least almost, for what I wanted to do, which was it, now. It's amazing. But like you said, with uh, your uh, professor or, or guidance counselor who mentioned, you know, what an internship, you know, what's an, like, and for you, someone who reached out to the Chamber of Commerce and is really motivated to get that education and I love that Mark Twain quote as well. But to be able to get that type of education at such a young age is really powerful, I think, in terms of helping you and, and guiding you. I, I always was a big believer and I, I interned. I wanted to get into communications and you'll appreciate this. I interned at News 12 in uh, Boston, which uh, you know is the, the local station. But of course, I was going to learn more there actually doing something than in a classroom. And you do need both. And so you end up at a DECA finishing up school. Yeah. And by the way, I was going to say one more thing, because I, I think on, on high school, I think it's interesting. Like what I took most out of my look, reflect back in high school. Yes, I learned things formally, of course. But what I took most out of it was the influences of two teachers. One, our teacher, Mrs. Anderson, was an incredible teacher who had a, a leadership style that I try to emulate today and very positive, very, it could make everyone's art better. And it was just something that I, I also think having people, art is underappreciated. Now, of course, we changed steam, STEM to steam for a reason, because it turns out, you know, the, the builder economy, the creator economy, we got to create stuff. We have to market it. We have to create it super important. And so having done art, I now credit with a lot of ability to have apply creativity to what we've created and, and the brand at Toast and the, the logo and the, everything there. But also my, my math teacher, Mrs. Looney, who just encouraged us to do the best we could to have greatness. She was very, she didn't tolerate any shit. So this idea of accountability, right, in business, which is super important, she held us accountable to high standards. So, you know, I think that we all have our influences and it's in my breaking, bringing two of those teachers were very, very meaningful for me. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Are you constantly finding yourself with 50 tabs open a day, hopping between tools just to do your job? Notion is the most customizable tool that helps teams organize information, manage projects, and get more work done together, all in one place. 
More than 70% of teams that use Notion stop using two or more tools because they didn't need them anymore. With powerful integrations, an API, and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and context switching that slow companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users, creating templates, tutorials, and new inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need. Learn more and get started for free at Notion.com slash how success happens. That's Notion.com slash how success happens to help you take the first step toward an organized, happier team today. And our next sponsor. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa Business Card and Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa Business Card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. And we're back. When you did end up graduating, what were your next steps? Did you jump right into being an entrepreneur? No, not right away. After having worked at Indeca in that sort of during college, I, we just, we were learning so much. We we're having such a good time. It was growing so much. And uh, we stayed and we stayed there for six years after that until, until we ended up selling that com- that company ended up selling to Oracle. And then that we started toast after that, but it was a great it really was a great learning experience. And I would say I had wanted to be an entrepreneur that whole time. And that influenced the way I thought about my work at Endeca. I was very curious to learn everything I could about how the company worked. I would talk to everybody I could and executives on down to people working in support or working in you know, services or engineering or sales. I just really made a point to get to know how the company worked. And then also to work in different jobs myself. I probably had seven or eight different managers during the time I was there. Sometimes the same job, different manager. But you learned a lot from you learned a lot from different managers and different management styles that you you see from that. Some very hands on, some hands off, some with you know, sales engineering backgrounds or engineering backgrounds or marketing backgrounds, business backgrounds, and so on. So that I was learning a ton. And then you, um, and then I got to be a manager. And so that was, became its own learning for me. And my co-founder, Man did the same thing. And same with uh, John uh, had, all, we had, we had sort of had lots of different roles in the company, you know, and then the cycles, you know, Indeca tried a lot of things and we, tr- we were very much part of teams at Indeca that were innovating and trying to build new businesses and so we had a bunch of cycles as entrepreneurs, even though we wouldn't have, we wasn't the full entrepreneur experience, but we had a lot of cycles and trying to build a business intelligence product for Indeca or trying to build a medium publishing product or trying to build a corporate intranet search product. 
And then finally, when the iPhone uh, was coming out with the App Store, I felt that that was going to be a big deal. And so we started to learning nights and weekends, taught ourselves to, to code iOS, iPhone applications. And actually, when we ended up doing some work on the side. We built the nationwide insurance app. We built the app for bnhphoto.com. Oh, actually, that was later. No, a local company here called shoebuy.com. We built their app. And we built uh, the first Flickr browser. Hmm. Uh, we built our own Google Maps interface before there was even a Google Maps interface. We just took all the image tiles from Google and, and made our own uh, Google Maps browser because we wanted to map the Flickr photos that were geotagged. And so we had a lot of fun with that. And, and we learned a lot. But then ultimately, we built a mobile product at Indeca to sell to all the mobile the retailers, I should say, that were already Indeca's customer. And so there was a lot of business lessons in addition to tech lessons that we learned. We saw which products we tried to launch didn't work. We saw which products did. And we saw the benefit that we had as a strategy in Deca of building more products for online retailers. Indeca always had the strongest brand for the online retail industry. We had the strongest products for the online retail industry. We had a sales channel of Many reps, many enterprise sales reps with many relationships with all with 42 of the top 100 retailers were customers. And so when they, then lo and behold, when we did a partnership with a company called Hybris that ended up selling to SAP later, but when we did a partnership to be their exclusive distributor in the US, we sold really well. And then when we built a mobile, pro, mobile commerce product for the iPhone and Android and iPad and web, that sold really well. So we saw this benefit of this vertical focus. And then that kind of carried into applying that to toast and into which vertical and, they, and we ended up deciding on restaurants but this idea of being a vertical company where you can really have a strong brand and a strong relationship with your customers and you're solving for the problems of one particular type of customer and then just being able to build more and more products that that customer needs is certainly a lesson that we took away from indeca tell me how it came about where you decided to finally go out start your own business toast with your partners and what was the process like? Because were you still at Indeca at the time? Well, Indeca had been acquired by Oracle. So we were at Oracle at the time. And of course, we tried to keep those things separate, you know, and use our own systems, do your own time. But we would meet um, nights and weekends and we would often at restaurants because that's where, where you're going to meet on your free time. And we would just discuss business ideas. And we would talk about what we were ready. Jeez, what wasn't, it wasn't TechCrunch at the time, was it? It was... Uh, Maybe it was. I don't know. There was a website that was really popular at the time. This was you know, 2010, I guess, 2011, that all the startups would read. We'd, we'd be reading that all the time. Aman's brother had been running product at Hulu. He had worked at Amazon. So we were exploring different ideas in that space, exploring different ideas in, in, in TV. Kind of decided that if you wanted to do something in TV, you had to be where the advertisers were in New York or where the producers were in LA. And we didn't want to move. We had family. We all, all we had both had family in Massachusetts. And so we were going to stay here. And so, okay, well, what can we do that leverages our existing background? And we had we knew commerce because Indeca was selling to e-commerce companies. We knew mobile because we had been building mobile applications for years now at that point. And we had this idea of being vertical and we knew SaaS was the business model that you, ha that you had to build uh, these days because gone were the days of perpetual licenses and maintenance revenue models. We'd seen this rise of Salesforce. We saw Groupon really build a really strong business in, in within restaurants, but yet then start to not be the solution that restaurants needed. So that sort of exposed to us, well, gee, restaurants is a really big market. And it was, it was a market that nobody ever thought to build anything. And at the time, this was like 2011. Nobody was 
thought it was a good idea. And we talked to VCs about whether or not we, we, we said we're going to build a restaurant business. You know, we don't invest in restaurant tech. Are you kidding? That's crazy. It's, it's dead. It's nothing there. Right. But it was just early days. I think we were not on trend. You know, a lot of, a lot of times it's easier to raise money if you're on some hot tech trend, which we were definitely not. We were ahead of the trend. But I think in hindsight that that may be a better position to be in. Just was, it was just a lot harder to raise money at the time. So, but the, all that confluence of, of things coming together. And then we saw Square in farmers markets and, and craft fairs and food trucks and very horizontal in that regard, but it was doing commerce and for SMB. And, and so we ended up just picking restaurants and said, let's, we got to go much more above market from Square. In, in our mind, that meant full serve restaurants and bars, not, not necessarily big enterprise chains, but we knew we had to, to have some sort of carved out niche strategy of the market that we could win. Because this was my background in enterprise sales and enterprise sales, if you're trying to compete head on with a much larger player, you've got to, you know, divide and conquer or choose a niche to, you know, choose an area that you can, your particular software can win versus the broad platform. If you're competing, if you're in DECA competing against Oracle, that's what we would do. Or we were in DECA competing against IBM, that's what we do. So in this case, we're competing against Square and Jack Dorsey, who can raise $200 million in his sleep. I think he had just raised $100 million or, or $200 for Square at the time. We said, there's no way we can compete head on. We got to compete with some particular smaller niche. And for us, that was full service restaurants. So we then just sought to solve the problems of full service restaurants, started out trying to do mobile payments because it was sort of a combination of Square Wallet and Groupon at the time. We had these vouchers that you could share on Facebook. We thought that would be a better distribution channel and without giving away two thirds of the voucher for free, you know, and then we thought being able to open up a tab and have your photo show up in the restaurants app and then say, I want to pay with toast uh, or I want to pay, put it on my toast tab. And then you could have a card on file and you could just pay the bill and walk out and leave. It was really, it was a magical experience. It was just, we hadn't thought through consumer acquisition cost or how we would actually get consumers. We hadn't thought through the, the operational complexity of putting a tablet on the side of the point of sale and having this double entry problem where you'd enter the order into the POS, then you'd, and you'd have to enter the order into the toast tablet on the side of the POS. Of course, you'd forget to do that as a server because it's busy Friday night and the restaurant's packed and crazy. And you can, so then all of a sudden the guests would just pay for half the bill because you forgot to enter the second round of drinks or the second, you know, the dessert, dessert or whatever. And then you'd be out the, the tips as a server, the restaurant's out the money, you know, everybody's unhappy with toast at the time. And when that happens, and so it just, it didn't have product market fit, but we had ended up integrating to the point of sale after we had done that and realizing, wow, this thing is really outdated. It's really not built for a consumer interface. If we want to build really good consumer technology for restaurants, we're going to have to start by building this system with consumer in mind from the ground up on a modern tech architecture that you can, that you can integrate to an app. And it felt very similar to us to at the time to what we saw in the early days of e-commerce, early days, and I guess the dot-com days, when uh, companies like ATG in, in Boston came out with uh, their commerce platform, they were sucking all the data out of the mainframes that were running the brick-and-mortar retail shops, right? Like in-store, running the POS systems, which were these blue and green screen systems as well, right? Where with that, we were not meant for consumers to enter. They were meant for cashiers to scan things in. But you had to add images and descriptions and categories and titles of the products and all that metadata that would be used to create an e-commerce site that customers could self-order. We just looked at the restaurant side and said, these POS systems are 
not meant for customers to self-order or to, to do anything. And so that was the epiphany, I think. And, and then once we switched to building point of sale, there was tremendous restaurant demand for a system that would would be modern and be easy to use and easy to train their staff and they could get reports at home instead of being in a restaurant all the time. So just took off from there. And how about for you and the team at that point? Because you start with this idea, right? And a lot of this happens a lot, but for the entrepreneurs out there starting businesses, you know, you have this one idea and this is what you're going after. It sounds like it was both maybe deflating, but also exciting when you realize that you had to build kind of the restaurant's POS system. Was that the feeling you had at the time? Yeah. Well, I remember Steve Papa, who was, as I mentioned, a Decas co-founder was also advising us at the time. He was our investor when we, he put the first check in to pivot to POS. We had been bootstrapping on the mobile payment side before that. But he, we remember talking to him about this idea of switching when we were when getting money from him. He said, oh man, this is going to be really hard to build. And so he started asking other industry experts that he, you know, he was able to connect to, like, what do you think about this idea? They're like, it's going to take them five years to build this thing. It's super hard. You know, this, these companies that are, are doing this have been around for 20 years. Of course, that was also their, their demise too. Like they, they <laughs> right. 20 year old architect, but it was true. We were comp- competing against companies that had 20 years worth of features as well and 20 years worth of investment into quality and reliability and stability. And so those companies thought, they were sort of unassailable because they had the, the best system, they had the best quality, they had the best depth of functionality, but they didn't have the cloud uh, ability to configure from at home or see your reports from at home, or they didn't have handheld so you can order at the table, take payments to the table and save tons of time, but from your servers so you could speed up your business. They didn't have online ordering or you know loyalty or gift card programs just built in with the consumer first mentality. And so restaurants wanted that. And so we were, restaurants were able, able to sort of overlook the functionality that we might not have had yet or the quality that wasn't there yet because they were getting something that they, that they were very excited about. But yeah, it was hard. It was hard to build. And I remember that in addition to just this ability, this epiphany of maybe comparing uh, point of sale to the e-commerce systems that we'd seen at Indeca, I remember trying to figure out, okay, well, if it's going to be really hard, this is the feedback we're getting. It's going to be really hard to build. Well, let's see if we can do it. And so I bought a cash drawer and I bought a printer and I had a credit card reader that I bought that was encrypted. And, and I first was writing the code to that cash drawer to open and that printer to print a paper receipt. I mean, remember, I was a software guy. We'd never worked with hardware. This was, we'd never been like sending binary streams to a <laughs> binary API printer and figuring out how to decrypt something from a card. I had no cryptography experience. And somehow I got it all to work. I still don't know how. I, I feel like I was like feeling around in the dark to, and just writing random code to try to decrypt this thing and trying to follow some really hard to read PDF. But it, when all three of those finally worked, okay. We got this Android tablet. We've got it printing a receipt. We've got it opening a cash drawer, and we've got it taking a, reading a, a credit card. And those are the key pieces of trying to build a, a system to take order. So if we can get that to work, hey, maybe we can actually build this. And so then we started building the the prototype that became the first customer customer launch, and and then making everything else from there. Was there a time, maybe a, a restaurant restaurant chain, or where? You were like, you know what? We've got something. This is really going to work. We can really expand this. 
Yeah. So that first idea that we thought we could do it, we got the tech working. Okay. That was really a, a high, a high moment for us. Then I would say, yeah, first couple customers were further validation that, Hey, this is going to work. Like our first customer was using square and it was a coffee shop, but we had a kitchen screen so that their barista could see the order coming in from the cashier that was, you know, not too far away, but, you know, far enough away down the, down the coffee counter. And then there was a kitchen in the back for sandwiches and stuff like that. And then again, another kitchen screen there. And then they did table service on the weekends for brunch. And so they had, we, they could take the handheld around and take orders at the table and, and, um, and even just do full service because square at the time you had to order and then pay at the same time. You could only have one order at all times. Right. And Whereas in a restaurant, you know, you've got people sitting down at tables, you've got hundred orders or 10 orders or 20 orders, all being added to and edited at the same time. Well, Square didn't support that. It was for a very simple system at the time. And so even those little things were a big operational improvement for the restaurant. So sort of that, that felt pretty good, but I think we all, we all, we didn't, Square wasn't the competitor at the time that we were worried about. But then the second customer of ours was a micros displacement. And we, they were using micros, which was at the time, I think we we had seen some market stats that suggested Micros had twenty five percent of restaurants, and NCRLO had had the other another twenty five percent, and then it was a long tail of of similarly old systems after that. And so, displacing Micros, like one of the two leaders, as our second major customer. And I remember Steve Papa tells this story too. He's like, "Hey, when I gave him five hundred k, and then within two hundred fifty k later, they had displaced Square and Micros." <laughs> uh, and they had five other customers lined up, ready to go live. Like I thought they were onto something. And I, you know, in that point, that, that was sort of a moment where we said, okay, we're onto something. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. How about today? How many, uh, what's the total restaurants? Do you even have a account on how many locations you guys are in? But yeah, I'm over 50,000. That's, that's public data point that we shared and growing, of course. Yeah. So quite a long, a long way from that, those first five to, to where we are today. Yeah, pretty incredible. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, what was it like and how did you handle the pandemic when a lot of restaurants had to close and I mean over a long long period of time? Well, I mean it was there's been some some dark days for everybody, our customers for for Toast, for our for our team and our employees. I mean there's nothing I think I can't I don't know if there's anything we've done in our careers as leaders at Toast that's been probably more difficult than getting through the pandemic, we laid off 50% of the team. That is not anything anyone ever wants to do and was super difficult. But I I think, and then we saw our industry crushed and decimated and then our, and our customers were laying off 100% of their teams or 80% of their teams and restaurant revenues dropped by 80%. So it was chaos. It was chaos. But the fact that we only focus on restaurants and the fact that as a company, we are very driven by mission and culture and values, I think really helped us get through because our mission is to empower the restaurant community to delight guests, do what they love and thrive. And we're very focused on that. Two thirds of our Toast employees have worked in restaurants, love restaurants, want to, to, to support the, the industry that they came from and that they love. And so we just jumped into action and it was sometimes I think the best thing to do in, in a chaotic environment is just to, to get busy making things, fixing, fixing things, right? Get to work and just do what you can. And so that's what we did. And we launched a lot of products and remember telling the team, I need stuff launched in days and and weeks, not months and years. Like every day counts right now. Our customers need to online order. They need gift cards. We need to launch 
a campaign rally for restaurants to see if we can get as many consumers to order online and buy gift cards as they can to support the local you know, customers. We were trying to get that on TV and to see if, if that could get picked up in the media in order to amplify our voice. We were lobbying Congress to help with the Independent Restaurant Coalition. We were trying to figure out how we could get loans and, and help once there was a stimulus package. Could we help make it really easy for our customers to get access to small business loans or, or the PPC loans? I mean, there was just so much that where every day and every, like I said, every day counted. And it wasn't, you know, of course, we're, no, we're never perfect, but there was also pain and we made some mistakes in the period, but we were guided by that mission. And then from a culture perspective, the same thing, I think when we went through layoffs, we have a very positive culture. We, one of our core values is em, embrace a hospitality mindset. And we think about hospitality the way Danny, Danny Meyer thinks about hospitality. It's, it's about how you make other people feel starting with your peers and then your customers and then your vendors and everybody in the community around you, but it's about welcoming. Hospitality is about welcoming you into your, you know, welcoming a stranger or a guest into your home is sort of a way to think about hospitality. So we have a culture that's very welcoming, that's very warm, that's very positive and very, and very mission-driven. We're driven by purpose is another value, always hungry. You know, we're very innovation-driven, very driven towards growing ourselves and our careers in that as well. And then leaving with humility is another one. I think that we embrace all kinds of people. We want everybody to succeed. And so I think that helped, helped. I mean, it, there's no, you can never not have pain in a layoff, but I, I think we were driven by the right set of values that I think all many other companies that we saw at the time did, did, uh, didn't do it the right way. And I, I think we, we did to, to the best you can in that situation. So I'm a big, I'm a big believer that our mission our culture and our values drove us in a very positive direction. And I think there's a reason why people say mission and values oriented companies outperform. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I have to give you a lot of credit, especially to be able, you know, we've talked to so many entrepreneurs on this show, including Danny Meyer and, and others in that business. And to be able to pick yourself off the mat from the pandemic and especially in the restaurant business, which I always find are the most incredible entrepreneurs, the hardest working, the toughest business there is. It really is inspiring that you were able to do those things to stay in business and now not only survive, but continue on your path to thrive. So really congrats to you. And I love that you say a lot of that comes and is driven off your culture and two thirds of your employees have worked in restaurants and it's just such a unique business. But I love how you place a lot of that value on your mission, on your culture and ethos. And I just really appreciate that and want to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing some incredible stories with us. And, you know, I love the the Facebook story. I love the wicked. Uh, that's always Boston. And I love the fact that even after all that, you've rebounded and, and now we're running a major corporation. So kudos to you and you're an inspiring story. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. We'll talk to you hopefully soon. That was good. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. 
How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.